Hi everyone, welcome back to the Historical Paranormal Podcast. We are what, like nine days before Christmas? It is coming up fast and I feel like I just blinked and December was halfway over. And that's partially because, as you can tell from my voice, I am recovering from bronchitis, which was long and forever taking to get over and I'm still not over it. So that's why you haven't heard from me for a while because I've actually had these show notes done uh, and the research done for this particular episode for like three weeks and I just have not had a chance to record. So in any case, I'm back (laughs) and hopefully I will get over all of this uh, congestion and whatnot soon. But I wanted to bring you this story because I I had heard about it in passing, but it occurred so long ago that it just wasn't something, I think it was like 74 years ago, it just wasn't something that had crossed my mind. And when I was doing research for something else, it popped up and I was like, oh my gosh, reading through the story, I was actually terrified. And that's not something that really happens, especially when it's a murder that occurs with guns. It's just not something that's as fear-inducing as some of the other ones are. So we are going to get into it. So today's story is of the Phantom Killer. And there have been two movies made about it. One was called The Town That Dreaded Sundown. And there was another one, but I can't remember what it was called. Um, But that one came out more recently. Either way, they've both been very popular. And in both somewhat gotten things right, somewhat gotten things wrong, as movies usually do. But our story occurs in Texarkana in 1946. On May 8th of 1945, World War II officially ended in Europe. Celebrations took place all over the world as they celebrated VE Day, happy to see the carnage of the war end in the European theater. The United States, however, was not out of the woods yet. We would not be able to celebrate the war ending until Japan officially surrendered on board the USS Missouri on September 6th, 1945. With some soldiers staying back to clean up and enforce treaties with the small subsets of German, Japanese, and Italian groups resentful of the Allied victory and occupation, The flow of soldiers coming back from the European and Pacific theaters was slow but steady. As they began coming back to Texarkana, a city that sprawled the border of Texas and Arkansas, they faced a homegrown terror that no one expected in this sleepy town. Texarkana is a city split into two towns, really. Half sits in Texas's Bowie County, and the other half belongs to Miller County in Arkansas. It's nicknamed Little Chicago because the prominent railroad hubs and strong manufacturing sector and military sector bring popular musicians, entertainers, and touring politicians to the stopgap town. On February 22nd, 1946, 25-year-old Jimmy Hollis and his 19-year-old girlfriend, Mary Jean Larry, had gone to see Three Strangers a film noir crime drama starring Sidney Greenstreet, Geraldine Fitzgerald, and Peter Lore. With them were Jimmy's brother and his date. The drive-in theater that night was perfect for a date. The chilly winds of February provided the perfect reason for Jimmy and his brother to cuddle extra close to their dates. 
and the film was just enough of a thriller to keep them there. After Johnny walks into the sunset with Icy, the movie ends, and Jimmy drives his brother and his date to a downtown restaurant and drops them off. Jimmy and Mary wanted some alone time and found a secluded area near Richmond Road, known as Lover's Lane, to get more acquainted. Back then, it was still a gravel road and not yet connected to the main highway. After parking for about 10 minutes or so, a man tapped on their window. He wore a white hood with holes cut out for his eyes and mouth. Pointing a bright flashlight and a pistol in the couple's eyes, he told them to get out. At first, Jimmy couldn't believe that this was happening and thought it must be a prank. He told the intruder that he's got to have the wrong guy. Instead of the reassurance of a quick apology, an exit from the man, he got more angry and said, I don't want to kill you, fellow, so do what I say. Mary and Jimmy both hurried out of the car and stood next to their attacker. The man then said to Jimmy, take off your britches, which is the most northern thing that you'll ever see. And by northern, I mean North Texas, because when I lived in North Texas, I heard britches all the time and it still cracks me up. One of my neighbors uh, would say, if I was on a pogo stick or if I was like on the trampoline or something, maybe jumping too high or something like that, she would tell me I was going to bust my britches and I will never forget that. But anyway, back to our serious tale. So Jimmy hesitated, unsure whether he should fight or flee. Mary, scared of what the attacker might do, told Jimmy to remove his pants. Sure that this was a robbery, Mary then opened Jimmy's wallet to show the man that it was empty. Once Jimmy's pants were off of him, the man hit him so hard with the butt of his pistol that it fractured his skull in two places. The sound was so loud that Mary thought the man had shot Jimmy. The man then turned to her and told her to run. As she did, she could hear him stomping on Jimmy further and kicking him in the head. This hooded man was not finished. Mary must have lost track of where she was running. After all, it was pitch blackout, and the place they'd gone to was dark and secluded for a reason. So somehow, she ended up back at Jimmy's car, and the hooded assailant asked her why she was running. She said, because you told me to. He then hit her head hard with a blunt object. As she was lying on the ground, he sexually assaulted her with the barrel of the pistol. This seemed to be enough for the masked man, who then vanished into the night. Mary then fled as fast as she could after waking up, trying to flag down a car driving by only to be ignored. She ran to a house nearby, waking up the residents who called the police for her. A short while later, Jimmy regained consciousness. The hooded man must have thought he'd killed him, and he was nearly right. Jimmy managed to flag down a car, who alerted the police immediately. Both Mary and Jimmy were rushed to the hospital, where Mary received minor treatments for cuts. However, Jimmy had suffered two fractures to his skull and had to spend weeks in the hospital to recover. He was told later that he also wouldn't be able to resume his work as an insurance agent for at least six months. His emotional injuries would far outlast six months. Their descriptions of the man varied. What little Mary could see after being blinded with the flashlight 
was that he was over six feet tall and black. Jimmy, while agreeing that the man was over six feet tall, disagreed and said the man was white. Police interrogating them, however, didn't believe that they didn't know their attacker. They repeatedly questioned Mary throughout the night, believing her to be covering for whomever attacked them. After recovering from her injuries, Mary moved to Oklahoma, traumatized by her brutal treatment by both her attacker and then the police. She did not return. She, like Jimmy, was plagued with nightmares of the incident, saying later that his voice still rings in her ears, and it was a sound she'd never forget. This was the first attack that Texarkana, a small town spanning the border of Texas and Arkansas, would endure, but not the last. News spread of the masked man quickly in the small town, but it wasn't until March 24, 1946, that the first real worry began. Richard Griffin, then 29, had come back from World War II after having served as a Navy CB. The CBs were created in 1942 as a construction battalion that keeps Navy ships and American military bases maintained. When Richard served, it was a fairly new unit. Back from the war, he'd found housing meant for returning soldiers, and he and his mother moved in. He was able to find work again as a carpenter and a painter, and purchased a 1941 Oldsmobile sedan. It seemed that life was going to fall back into the routine that he'd had before the war. He'd also found a girlfriend in 17-year-old Polly Ann Moore. She'd graduated from high school in nearby Atlanta, Texas, at just 16 years old. She'd moved to Texarkana after, and lived with her cousin in a boarding house while working as a checker at Red River Arsenal, an ordnance depot for the military. They had been dating for six weeks, and on March 23rd, they dined with Richard's sister and her husband on a quiet Saturday evening. After dinner, they decided to take a trip down to Lover's Lane on their way back to their homes. At some point in the evening, it's believed they exited the car and laid a blanket out on the grass. The next day, a passing motorist came across a 1941 Oldsmobile sedan parked on the side of the road and looked inside. They saw a man between the two front seats, on his knees, resting his head on his hands. His pockets had been turned out. In the back seat was a woman lying face down. At first... The passerby thought they were asleep. It wasn't until they saw the dark blood oozing from a hole in the back of Richard's head that they called the police. Once Bill Presley, the Bowie County Sheriff, arrived on the scene, it was determined that both Richard and Polly had been shot once in the back of the head, outside of the car, then placed, and in Richard's case posed, back inside the car. The blood-stained blanket was found a few feet away. Initially, reports came back that Polly had been raped, but modern findings have refuted this. It had been a rumor that was flying around the town, but it is not true, thankfully. A few 32 caliber shells were found at the crime scene, possibly from a Colt pistol. It was also thought that the killer had wrapped the gun in a blanket or some other hushing material because club goers at the nearby club Dallas hadn't heard any gunshots. Texarkana now had a reason to worry. While the attack on James Hooker and Mary Larry had appeared isolated over a month prior, it now appeared that there was a hunter on the loose. 
The brutal nature of the crimes had sparked public interest, and soon a $500 reward went up to catch the killer. Unfortunately, after around 300 leads and interviews came to nothing, the murders began again. 15-year-old Betty Jo Booker was a star student. She was a Texarkana native. Once living on the Arkansas side with her mother, by this point, she and her family lived on the Texas side. She played saxophone in a band called the Rhythm Airs, which brought her a fun respite from her strenuous school schedule at Texas High School. Jerry Atkins, the band leader, had originally only hired male musicians, but the war had robbed him of his star players, and he turned to finding talented female musicians instead. Betty was young, but clearly gifted enough to audition and then get the saxophone player's position in the band. Her lifelong friend, 16-year-old Paul James Martin, was in town visiting friends on the weekend of April 12, 1946. Betty had missed him terribly when his family moved to Kilgore, Texas, around two hours away from Texarkana, and was excited to see him again on Saturday, April 13th. She was booked to play a gig with the Rhythm Airs that Saturday at the Veterans of Foreign Wars Club on West 4th and Oak Street. It must have been a really good night because the party went until 1.30 in the morning. The plan was that Paul would take Betty in his 1946 Ford Club Coupe to a slumber party across town. At some point, the two ventured off into the privacy of Lover's Lane. Around 6.30 a.m. the next morning, Mr. and Mrs. G.H. Weaver were walking with their little boy along North Park Road. It was there that they came across the body of Paul Martin. It was clear he'd been shot several times, once through the ribs on his left side from behind, which led police to believe that he'd been running away from the murderer, once through the nose, and once through the right hand, as well as once through the back of the neck. This time, there hadn't been posing in a car. Maybe there was a passing car, or perhaps there were more pressing matters to attend to. Again, Bill Presley Presley was called out to investigate a crime scene. After interviewing a few witnesses, he was told that Paul hadn't been alone that night. Okay, you guys, after that knock, um, or before that knock... It sounded like somebody was trying to break into my home, um, and I was freaking out. And as it, we'd had a lot of home invasions in the neighborhood. So, as it turned out, after about ten minutes of like, oh my gosh, do I open the door? What do I do? Um, it was a package that had been pushed against the door in a way that kind of pushed it in a little bit. So. That happened, and now I'm rattled. Of course, during the show, I was already kind of rattled. But (laughs) anyway, that's what that knock was. And I left it in because I thought it was kind of interesting or fun. But anyway. All right. So they find out that Paul hadn't been alone that night. And that he had a friend with him, Betty Jo Booker. And she hadn't shown up to the slumber party, but her body was also missing from Paul's crime scene. So after a large search was performed of the surrounding area, one search group, including members of the Boyd family, found Betty. She was posed with her coat buttoned all the way up to her neck, laying on her back with her right hand in her pocket in a woody area. 
She'd been shot in the chest and then in the face. At some point, either before or after this, she'd been raped. Her saxophone wasn't found until about six months later, still in its black case and in some underbrush near where the body had been found. Both of them had defensive wounds and had put up a pretty good struggle before being murdered. This may be why Paul hadn't been posed in the car and left out on the side of the road. While police said they weren't sure who'd been killed first, it's likely that Paul had been, as the killer had clearly taken his time with Betty Jo. The term serial killer hadn't been coined yet, so police and the public were only able to say that someone was targeting young couples along secluded streets at night. Profiling was also not part of the criminal process yet, though we will see some of it happen later. Hysteria rose, as it would, and people began turning in anyone they had a slight suspicion about. One local minister even turned in his own son. Eventually, police had to make a statement that these rumors and false leads were a hindrance to the investigation and harmful to innocent persons. None of it would stop the next murder. The next Tuesday, funerals for both Betty Joe and Paul Martin were held at the Beach Street Baptist Church. As Betty's father died when she was young, her mother spoke for her, saying, and I quote, I trust the men who were handling the investigation into my daughter's death. I'm sure they'll find out who did it. If he is caught, I would like to kill him. If they would let me, I would kill him myself. The Rhythm Airs never played another gig. By this time, the Texas Rangers had been called in to help investigate the crimes. Manuel T. Gonzalez was a showman who wore impeccable suits and a white 10-gallon hat. He was immediately resented by Texarkana police for asking a lot of questions but not doing any actual police work for being part of the Texas Rangers. He loved holding press conferences and was famous for it. The Texarkana Gazette named him as one of the best-looking men they've ever seen. While Gonzalez's involvement in the case brought needed attention to it, it also led the investigation down the wrong path. Betty's saxophone, going missing, led Emanuel to believe that the pair were the victims of a robbery gone wrong. Eventually, this led to an arrest in Corpus Christi of a man trying to sell a saxophone to a pawn shop. He'd been acting nervous, and when questioned about where he got the instrument, he left in a hurry. He then went to purchase a 45 caliber pistol. When police finally caught up with him two days later and searched his home, they found a bag of bloody clothes. After being detained and explaining that the clothing was part of a bar fight, he was released. The reward was increased from $500 to $1,700, roughly $25,000 in today's money. On May 3rd, the killer would strike again. Virgil and Katie Starks were in their late 30s. They were a farming couple, and occasionally Virgil would act as a neighborhood welder to earn a little extra money. While they had no children, they did have a comfortable and modern ranch-style home on a 500-acre farm. On the evening of May 3rd, Virgil was just sitting down in his favorite time-worn armchair to read the Texarkana Gazette and listen to his favorite radio show. Katie had brought him a heating pad to soothe his sore back and then slipped into bed around nine. 
Only a few minutes later, Katie heard something or someone in their backyard. She yelled at Virgil to turn down the radio so she could try and hear what the sound might be. Immediately, she hears the breaking of glass. As she runs to the living room, she sees Virgil standing up, his face covered in blood. As she registers that her husband has been shot, he falls back into his armchair dead. While Katie was rushing over to see if her husband was alive, she didn't realize that the killer was standing right outside the window he'd just shot at her husband through, still wearing his hood. Realizing her husband isn't alive, she rushes to the phone to call the police. She gets about two wall cranks into calling when two shots ring out. One bullet shoots through Katie's right cheek, exiting behind her right ear. The next bullet hits her underneath her tongue, where it stays, aggravating the teeth it just splintered into pieces and breaking her jaw. The pain must have been immeasurable. It knocked Katie to her knees, but she's a Texas girl through and through, and she fights through the pain to crawl back to the bedroom. She remembers there that Virgil kept a pistol in the living room. She hears Virgil's killer walk away from the window, so she makes her way to the living room once more. Unfortunately, blood and shock have taken over, and she's unable to see anything outside of blurry shapes. Suddenly, she hears the killer cutting through a screen door to get at the back door. She realizes before going back into the living room that there's no time to try and find the gun, then try to aim it at a man that she can't even see. Instead, she makes her way, leaving behind what police would describe as a virtual river of blood in her wake to the front door, to run across the street to her sister's house. Barefoot, and in her blood-soaked nightgown, she bangs on their door before realizing no one is home. Her next salvation is the neighbor's house around 50 yards away. Thankfully, A.V. Prater answered the door. He opens the door to a bloody Katie, who then says, Virgil's dead, before collapsing. Immediately, Prater grabs his rifle and fires warning shots to alert the other neighbors that something's wrong. The Prater family carefully loaded Katie into a neighbor's car and heads to Michael Meager Hospital, now the Miller County Health Unit. Katie tried to remain conscious through the car ride and pulled out her broken teeth on the way, giving the one with a gold filling to the neighbor whose car was quickly getting bloodier and bloodier as payment. Thankfully, I mean, Jesus, sorry. (laughs) Jeez, Katie. Um, Thankfully, the only danger she'd been in health-wise was the amount of blood she lost. The gunshot wounds themselves were not life-threatening. She entered surgery for her wounds and lived to tell the tale. Officers at the scene were surprised to find the armchair that Virgil was sitting on on fire. The heat pad Katie had brought him ignited the chair. Luckily, the fire was contained, and the crime scene wasn't further contaminated. This was the first shooting to take place on the Arkansas side of Texarkana, and police weren't sure whether it was truly connected to the other murders. It's believed that the killer had watched the Starks for a while that evening, before shooting them. He shot Virgil in the head twice, then waited, knowing Katie would rush to his aid after hearing the shots. There were also only two large bullet holes in the window, leading police to believe that the killer used an automatic rifle. It would have made holes big enough for two bullets to go through one hole and two more bullets to go through another. 
They also found bloody shoe prints on the kitchen floor, presumably made when he finally broke through the back door. Blockades were immediately set up along the highways to stop cars for questioning. While 12 people were detained that night, none were actually arrested or indicted on suspicion of murder. Rumors flew around the city like crazy, and police again, backed up by Gonzalez, asked the public not to come to them with baseless rumors. Gun shops sold out of guns and other weapons. Windows were blocked and curfews were instituted. Police had to turn on their sirens when going to a home or call ahead so that a nervous homeowner didn't shoot at them. Texarkana had become a dangerous place to be. Teenagers took to sitting in parked cars along lovers' lanes around the city, trying to see if they could catch the killer themselves. One officer approached a car and said, I'm Tillman Johnson with the Miller County Sheriff's Department. Aren't you scared to be parked out here at night? The girl told him, You're the one who ought to be scared, mister. It's a good thing you told me who you are. She revealed then that she'd been pointing a 25 caliber ACP pistol at him the whole time. Captain Gonzalez again took to the press to tell teenagers that sleuthing was a good way to get killed. That being said, baiting the killer with decoys, sometimes the Texas Rangers' own children, wasn't out of the question. It didn't work, however, and the search was still on. After the Starks attack, the police and Gonzalez were on the same page. They said the killer was likely a sex pervert or a sex maniac. Dr. Anthony Lapaya, a psychologist at the Federal Correctional Institution in Texarkana, believed that the killer was in his 30 or mid-30s to 50s, clever, shrewd, and a lone wolf, possibly an upstanding member of the community, unlikely to be caught. He would prove right in this case. The phantom killer was never caught, which isn't to say that there were not suspects. Yule Sweeney, a career criminal, had been arrested in connection with the crimes. It did not help him that his wife was the one who was giving all of the evidence against him either. While she had known a lot of details, over the course of six months, her stories began to change. She started as an innocent bystander and newlywed who only suspected her husband of committing these murders to a witness to the crimes. Her stories eventually started to differ so much that they didn't make sense anymore and Yule wasn't prosecuted for the murders. He was, however, prosecuted for the multiple cars he'd stolen and sentenced to 26 years in prison for those crimes. He later died in 1994 at a Dallas nursing home. Another credible suspect that would surface was Henry Tennyson Booker. Duty, as he was known in his family, Duty, was 15 or 16 at the time of the murders, and 18 when police turned their attention to him. Duty played in the same high school band as Betty Jo Booker, but they weren't friends. His mother worked at the Red River Arsenal, where Polly worked, and he worked at the theater the night that Jimmy and Mary were assaulted. It wasn't just this that brought Duty to the attention of the police. They only knew who he was, because at 18 years old, the freshman at the University of Arkansas had ingested cyanide of mercury and killed himself. When going through his room, police found a riddle left in the suicide note and a lockbox. It reads, The opening to my box 
will be found in the following few lines. In a tube of paper is found, rolls on colors, and it is dry and sound. The head removes, the tail will turn, and the inside is the sheet you yearn. Two bees mean a lot when they are together. These clues should lead you to it. The investigators soon solved the riddle, which led them to a BB fountain pen. Inside it was a note containing the combination to the lockbox. Once they were in the lockbox, they found letters that proved pretty incriminating for duty, which he knew because he wrote them, to be found. One excerpt reads, Why did I take my own life? Well, when you commit two double murders, you would too. Yes, I did kill Betty Jo Booker and Paul Martin in the city park that night and killed Mr. Starks and tried to get Mrs. Starks. You wouldn't have guessed it. I did it when Mother was either asleep or out, and no one saw me do it. For the guns, I disassembled them and discarded them in different places. While police were quick to investigate the letter's claims, they were also dismissed pretty quickly. Duty had made many claims in the letters found in the lockbox, and a lot of them were just too incredible to be true. His brothers and his other family members would also attest that he liked to tell stories, true and untrue, swearing they were the truth. In his letters, he also blames his suicide more on a lifetime of depression, as opposed to guilt for the murders. To top it off, one of Duty's childhood friends, James Freeman, was with him the night of the Starks' murder, and could attest to them having been together all day and hearing about it together that night. The last credible suspect to surface was a 26-year-old black man who was arrested in January of 1949 for killing a young black couple in Waco, Texas. He'd killed the man and sexually assaulted the female victim. At the time, he confessed to the phantom killings, but then recanted his testimony later on once it had become clear that the sentence would likely be death. It was also discovered that he worked for Virgil Starks at one point, even living on the property when the murder occurred. For whatever reason, charges were never filed. He was given a life sentence for his other crimes. To this day, people argue over who the real killer was. If I had to guess, it wasn't any of the three suspects. I'd put money on it that it was a member of the Texarkana community, maybe even a well-respected member of the community. How else could he evade capture the way that he did? As far as what seems to be the most credible um, suspect, I couldn't find his name anywhere. He was only listed as 26-year-old black man. Um, typical. But um, as far as he goes, his testimony or his confession seemed like it was coerced because it never came up until somebody else brought it up during the interrogation that, oh, maybe because his MO matched the phantom killings, Maybe he killed all those people on Texarkana, but I don't know. I really do think that that was, he's probably not the dude. Even though it, the fact that he worked for Virgil Starks at one point, that's a little bit of a thing. I don't know. And you know, time may or may not tell. I'm sorry, you guys, <laughs> that this is an unresolved case. Um... I hate those. I hate reading cold case files or things like that or watching cold case files, especially when there's no resolution. So sorry, 
But this is a super famous case in Texas that has largely disappeared into history. And let's bring it back. These poor people have had been murdered and, you know, we still don't know who the killer is. So hopefully interest in this case is, I mean, it's been high, but hopefully more interest in this case may bring more clues to light. You never can tell. Well, my voice is about to completely give out. So I'm excited I got the actual bulk of the show done. Um, other than that, you guys have a happy holiday, be it Hanukkah or Christmas, um, however you celebrate happy holidays. And again, follow me on Instagram. I am at historical paranormal. You can also follow me or like my page on Facebook. And that is the historical paranormal podcast. I don't update very often. I am sorry. I'm not an updatey kind of person as far as Facebook goes. But I will try, probably more so in the new year, because right now I'm very busy with work and everything. But maybe that can be a resolution for me for 2021. Anyway, thank you so much for listening. I'll see y'all guys soon. Bye!